millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Tom Gatti, I'm culture editor of the New Statesman, and I'm on the line with Sarah Churchwell, author, critic, and professor of American literature, about to take up a new post at the University of London. Thanks very much for joining us, Sarah. Thank you. Um, Sarah, you have a long piece in the current issue of the New Statesman, um, really examining the uh, cultural myths behind the American South. I was going to start by asking you about uh, Gone with the Wind, probably the most well-known cultural image of the old American South, uh, captures the idea of the faithful slave, the southern belle, the nobility of the Confederate cause, but presumably Margaret Mitchell didn't pluck this out of thin air. What sort of books came before her and, and influenced this vision? Yeah, I think that's really important. In some ways, Gone with the Wind is a kind of epitome or apotheosis of a story that had been developing for a century or more. Um, she began writing Gone with the Wind in 1926, and you know, it took her a decade famously to finish. But as she was growing up, Mitchell was influenced by uh, writers and novelists, particularly Thomas Dixon, who's probably the most famous today for his novel The Klansman, which the uh, famous film The Birth of a Nation was based on. But she also read popular novels by writers like Mary Johnston and Thomas Nelson Page, who was very popular in the late 19th century. And he and Dixon and Johnston and um, another writer, another Johnston, which is confusing, called Annie Fellows Johnston, who wrote a series of books called The Little Colonel, um, one of which was adapted in the 1930s into a film starring Shirley Temple. So all of these stories were... Um, were incredibly popular in the in the late 19th century, but they they had purchase. You know, they they stuck through the 20s and 30s. People of Mitchell's generation in the South were hearing these stories from people who remembered the Civil War. These were people who had actually fought on the side of slavery. They were you know Confederate soldiers who had survived the war, and so you know they were pretty partisan in the stories that they were telling, and they wrote these novels that romanticized and idealized and glorified the Southern cause. And, and what they all did was try to justify and rationalize racism in the ways that the American South had always done, to say that, um, that slavery was necessary because black people either were a danger to white people or because they couldn't take care of themselves. So you basically have um, a kind of paternalistic view of black people as children, or you have a malevolent view of them as, um, you know, beasts, as a, as a danger. And all of those stories get kind of, uh, get 
mixed into this um, idealized mythical version of this genteel world um, in which white people lived in peace and black people toiled loyally and faithfully for them and everything was happy and the Civil War was an unfortunate, um, you know, uh, um, disaster created purely by the North who, for um, slightly obscure reasons, decided to screw everything up. And what was it about um, Mitchell's uh, text that, that made it so sort of definitive and, and gave it such um, such wider wider reach? Was it simply that she assembled all these ingredients in a, in a particularly appealing way? Or um, why, why is Gone with the Wind the one that, that has stuck? Yeah, there are a lot of reasons, as there often are with, you know, explaining why one book or one film, one story um, kind of hits a moment, why it strikes a chord, and it usually is, is many factors, you know, creating a kind of perfect storm, to use that cliche. The, in the case of Gone with the Wind, it, she, she, she does take a very old story, but in certain ways she updates it and makes it very uh, appealing to a 1930s audience. The two uh, clearest ways in which she does this is that the, the heroine, Scarlett O'Hara, um, is actually a kind of proto-feminist, and, and she's a much more interesting character than I think people often give her credit for being. And, and what happens, and of course this happens a lot historically, is that particularly as these causes were emerging, as people's attitudes about equality and social, social categories and social equality were changing, they didn't change um, consistently. They didn't change statically. So you get somebody like Mitchell, who who is pretty clearly fighting against a 19th century sexist ideal of femininity. And she can see clearly as a woman the problems that a woman faces, but she's completely blind to race, totally blind to race. So she's kind of interesting about sexism and not remotely interesting about racism because she just completely follows the most vitriolic, uh, you know, objectionable line on race. But so Scarlett O'Hara is this interesting woman in the 1930s, and she, um, you know, she's a businesswoman. She goes through all these husbands. She ends up alone, but you know, okay, she wants Rhett back. But there's this kind of sense that Scarlett is always going to be this woman alone, and and she's very much associated with a new world. Uh, she and Rhett are the new South, whereas Ashley and Melanie are the old South, and they're fading away. And so the, you know, Melanie gets killed off. I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but Melanie. Melanie doesn't survive the story. So there's a strong sense in which, although it is, a, it is a story that is romanticizing and idealizing the Old South, it also recognizes in a more hard-headed way that the Old South can't survive and that the, um, the qualities that are associated with Scarlet, um, both good and bad, um, her crassness, her, her focus on money, these are also associated very strongly in the story with survival. And I think that's the other aspect that made it really appeal to audiences in the 1930s. In many ways, Gone with the Wind is more a story about the Depression than it is about the Civil War. It's, I mean, if you remember the most famous scene from Gone with the Wind, both the film, well, the film is what makes it famous, but it is also in the book um, that everybody remembers, is Scarlett O'Hara with her fist against the horizon saying, as God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again. Um, and the rest of the story is about her absolute determination to survive. And that strikes a huge chord with a Depression-era audience. And, and in a sense, they don't care that it's against the backdrop of the Civil War. But I think the other important thing to note there is that they also don't care that it's deeply racist. That can just be kind of overlooked or accepted or even celebrated, and they're perfectly comfortable with that. What they see is a story about white people surviving, and that's 
consistent with other popular stories at the time. Yes, I suppose that um, looking back at it with a distance of years, we can now um, unpick some of the things that are going on beneath the surface there, which which wouldn't necessarily have been um, at the forefront of the audience's mind at, at the time. It, nevertheless, it did go on to um, capture some of this kind of moonlight and magnolia myth of the old South. And that myth didn't just sort of apply narrowly to the South in a kind of self-defining way, did it? It spoke much more broadly to the United States sense of national identity as a whole. Absolutely. And, and I think this is a really important point to make, particularly, um, you know, in the context of the piece that I was writing, I was focusing on, on the ways that this, that this myth, um, the, known as Moonlight Magnolia, or as the, the myth of the lost cause, which are slightly separate but overlapping, about antebellum life and um, the outcome of the Civil War. Um, yes, these are stories in which the South has a great deal at stake. It has a sense of regional identity and, and, um, and frankly, face-saving and, um, you know, justifying and rationalizing its own past. But the important point to make here is that this was not just, uh, these were not just stories that were locally popular or regionally popular. These had huge national and indeed international appeal. Um, Gone with the Wind, as you say, is, is certainly now the most familiar, but the birth of the, uh, the sorry, but the birth of a nation, which came out 20 years earlier in 1915 and helped invent, well, pretty much single-handedly invented feature film. Um, the, it is a great film in terms of cinema. Um, it is a great piece of movie making, but it is a hugely objectionable film. It's one of the most racist films ever made. And the thing that people forget about it is that D.W. Griffith, the director, who is, you know, a, a legendary Hollywood director, um, was actually the son of a Confederate colonel. So he grew up hearing these stories, too, and, and believed fully in, the, um, in, in the, the virtue of the Southern cause. The birth of a nation was a national phenomenon. It was just as big in its day, if not bigger, as Gone with the Wind would be 20 years later. And it was, and it was also an international phenomenon, but it was incredibly popular in the North. People, audiences cheered. White audiences were absolutely, you know, over the moon at the, and it is an incredibly racist story. Um, and it, it's about, you know, it's, it's just like Gone with the Wind. It tells exactly the same it follows exactly the same pattern where after the war, um, southern scalawags and, and, and useless black people are put in charge and they're oppressing poor, innocent white people and the black people are set free to rape white women. And, and so they actually, in Birth of a Nation, there is a cavalry that rides to the rescue and the cavalry is the KKK. Um, and so it tells this incredibly distorted and toxic story about the rise of the KKK and it casts the KKK as the heroes of the tale. And again, the important point here is that this was incredibly popular across America. The newspapers uh, reported that it inspired at least one racist murder. I mean, a, a, a random murder, a, a white guy walked out of the film and shot a black guy, or I don't know if he shot him, but he murdered a black guy that he saw on the sidewalk in, in the north. I forget which city. Um, so there was, there was at least one. There were probably more. There were racist riots that were um, sparked by it. It was shown in the White House for Woodrow Wilson, who was very much a Southern president. He was a segregationist. He was actually friends with both Dixon and Thomas Nelson Page, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and so the, it would be too easy to suggest that this is just 
a story um, about the South or in the South. It, it said something that America at that time very much wanted to hear. And indeed, the KKK, after the birth of a nation, the KKK spread. Um, it, it was basically, it functioned as a recruitment tool for the KKK. And in the next decade or so, after the film came out in 1915, um, the Klan spread up into the Midwest. It spread into Long Island. It's, and, and, you know, you can look at the New York Times in the 1920s, and there are headlines all over the place about how the mayor of New York City is trying to get rid of the KKK. I was trying to get it out of New York. Sorry to interrupt. I just, I just wanted to say I found that fascinating. In, in your piece, you um, mentioned the Great Gatsby and say yeah. that the, the Klan was actually quite active in Long Island, which is, I mean, I know, obviously, I know Gatsby and the the Tom Buchanan's discussion of of racism, scientific racism, and I've always found that slightly sort of distant and and vaguely mm. com- and comical and incongruous. And I yeah. I hadn't I I would not have guessed that it was so close to home. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I wrote a book about Gatsby, and and one of the things I found when I was researching it that shocked me, and I knew that stuff. I knew the KKK had spread into Long Island, and that was partly what I was researching was to try to find out more about how it worked. And I found a story. Um, printed in the New York Times from 1922, which of course is the year that Gatsby is set. And um, there was a, a, a story about um, a young black man in Hell's Kitchen, New York, which a lot of people will have been to now. It's about 8th or 9th Avenue and Midtown. So basically, if you just go a couple of avenues west from Times Square. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Where you're in Hell's Kitchen, and at the time it was a more dangerous area, but nonetheless, um, there was a, a young black man who was accused of kissing a white woman, and he was chased by a lynch mob through the streets of Manhattan, and he was only rescued by a policeman. And I think I've said before that basically the only difference then between New York and the Deep South in 1922 was that in New York, at least the policeman rescued him. Um, In the Deep South, he probably wouldn't have. And, you know, that same year in 1922, and I do mention this in the piece, the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, took out an ad against lynching, um, in the, again, in the New York Times, a full-page ad in the New York Times, saying that the United States of America in 1922 was the only country on earth where people were burned at the stake. And, and this leads to another point about lynching that I, that I mention in the piece. Well, I don't mention, I, I talk about it at, at some length, is that we now have this image of lynching as this furtive, isolated practice where, you know, um, a lynch mob would drag an isolated black man who'd been accused of rape. In the dead of night, they'd drag him out into the woods and they'd, and they'd you know, string him up from the nearest tree. And the fact is, is that by the 1920s, would that it had been that nice, would that it were that pretty and gentle. It was much, much worse than that. There was a practice called spectacle lynching. Well, uh, historians now call it spectacle lynching. And, um, and they, they advertised lynching. They planned for it days in advance. They invited people from miles around. People would come with picnics and make a day of it. And they would watch black people, men and women and children, be tortured and uh, mutilated and, and then hanged or burned. Or, and, and so the idea that this was some sort of furtive, isolated practice is part of the lie. And 
even if you just Google spectacle lynching, you'll find all kinds of horrific images. They, they made postcards. They sold postcards. They had pictures of lynch mobs were posed in front of their victims grinning. Um, and that's what the NAACP was uh, taking out an advertisement about in 1922, the same year that Gatsby is set. And one of the things that I was trying to do in this piece was to show that all of this is continuous. That there's a kind of, it's like a, a kind of um, poisonous baton relay race where the baton is passed from one generation to the next. And so, you know, um, Thomas Nelson Page and, and Thomas Dixon, with the help of Wilson, pass it to Margaret Mitchell and she passes it to Harper Lee and it comes through to Kill a Mockingbird. And, and you start to see the, with, with Harper Lee the struggles of well-meaning white people in the South to overcome racism, but they, and, and certainly her heart is in the right place. She is fighting, she knows racism is wrong, and she is fighting really, really hard to overthrow what she was taught, but what she was taught was racist. Obviously, um, Go Set a Watchman has kind of reignited this to some extent this, this summer with the realisation that Upper Lee's first conception of Atticus Finch was as an overt racist. It, given that you talk in the piece about Harper Lee's glossing over of the more deeply unpleasant aspects of, of racist behaviour in the South, such as the spectacle lynching, it makes one think, is the, the idea of, of the Atticus figure, the progressive moral lawyer in the South, is that itself romanticised to the point of being sort of almost anachronistic? Well, I'm afraid I think it is. And I mean, it's, you know, it's not as if there were not any people who, I mean, again, and this goes back to the point that we made in the beginning that I think is really important by the same token that it isn't just the South that's to blame and as if the North has some kind of moral high ground and, and didn't um, in any way participate in this mythmaking or, or support it or, uh, or believe it. By the same token, it's not as if every person in the South, every white person was, you know, was racist or, you know, members of a lynch mob or something. Um, it, certainly there were um, white people as well as black people in the South who were fighting for racial justice. So I don't think it's the case that, that there was no such thing as an Atticus Finch. Um, there must have been some. <laughs> um, they certainly weren't common. And I think that the, um, the picture that we see, if you put the two together, the Atticus Finch of, of To Kill a Mockingbird and the Atticus Finch of Ghost Set a Watchman, I think you see something that's probably more realistic, which is, um, uh, and it's like what I said about Harper Lee a minute ago, I think what you were much more likely to encounter is someone whose, you know, whose heart and head were, were at odds, if you like. You know, their, their, their sense of justice was constantly in battle with, the racism that they'd been taught and with their sense that their own privileges and power was very much um, dependent on these racist structures. And so taking those racist structures away were, was, was incredibly threatening to them. And, and of course, that remains the case um, for a great many people, unfortunately. Um, so I, I think that the idea that someone like, someone like an Atticus who would stand up for um, justice, but would do so in a kind of um, the impression that we get from Ghost at a Watchman is more of someone who would do it in a, in a kind of cold and dispassionate way um, because he believed in the clarity of the law and in this kind of almost inhuman way just wanted to pursue what the law said rather than out of some sense of sympathy or, or compassion for, um, for the suffering of 
human beings in uh, an unjust and oppressive system. That kind of a person, you can imagine when his racial prerogative is unquestioned and he's, you know, he's in full, uh, he's in full kind of control of his little society. He's at the top of the tree. It's all fine. He's not particularly threatened. He's got nothing to worry about. He can afford to defend a black man who's been unjustly accused of, of rape. Um, but 20 years later, when that man is older and more threatened and things have changed and the world as he knew it no longer exists and suddenly civil rights is happening and black people are demanding full equality under the law and all of them are demanding it, I don't find it that difficult to imagine such a man retreating back into um, a, a much more explicit and, um, and violent uh, defense of the privileges that his social status depended on. And so, and I think that's really what Ghost Out of Washington is about. That's what Harper Lee is writing about in that first novel, is a young woman who's been raised by a man who she believes is not racist, who she believes has taught her that racism is wrong. And she's shocked to find him defending racism. And, and I think that the, the kind of, um, the sort of psychic, psychological conflict that I just outlined is, is what she's exploring in that novel. To, to bring us up to date, there's a, there's a piece in the magazine alongside yours this week which argues that as the South's racial mix is changing with a sort of large influx of Spanish speakers, so you not, no longer have a kind of binary black and white population, and as society gradually becomes more and more liberal, this kind of notion of Southern traditionalism is effectively all but dead. And after all, we're at the stage where even Republican candidates such as uh, Jeb Bush and Scott Walker have said that the Confederate flag should be lowered and packed up. So I'm just wondering is how this myth that you outlined in the piece, how much currency does it still have? Is there anyone left who still believes in this old South way? Probably not quite in, in the full flower of it, as it were. Um, but there are an awful lot of people, and you can find them online in about five seconds, as I did when I was researching my piece, um, who are still mounting the argument that, um, again, that Harper Lee mounts at the end of Ghost Out of Watchmen. So bearing in mind that this is something she says in the late 1950s in this novel that has just been published, um, this is an argument that people are still making, that the Civil War was not really fought over slavery and racism. It was fought over states' rights and federal rights. Um, so you will still find a great many people saying, no, 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 the only reason why there wasn't the South were really being racist, that was just an unfortunate by, you know, um, byproduct, and you know, there were, it was anomalous. There were a few people, we know there were a few bad apples, um, but they absolutely deny categorically the idea that it was systemic, they uh, deny the idea that it was uh, structural, and they, and, they, and they deny that slavery and racism were the cause of the Civil War. And, and so to, to explain it to, to non-Americans, the... Um, the argument about states' rights and federal rights is, is certainly one that's ongoing. Um, it is something that America has never been able to resolve from the founding of the country, um, the first Constitutional Congress. This is one of the, the great debates that they and, – and we've kind of struggled with it ever since um, – is how much right the federal government has to control the nation and how much right individual states have. And so it becomes in a, in a kind of, I don't know if it's, which is the microcosm and which is the macrocosm, but um, they, they mirror arguments about the individual versus society. How much does an individual, does an individual's rights take precedent over the right of the collective um, and, you know, and, and vice versa. And so 
what you get in, in the case of this particular justification of the Civil War is the argument that the South should have just been left alone to do what it was doing. It was none of the North's business. And the reason why Southerners fought so hard was not because they were defending slavery per se. That was just an accident. What they were defending was, quote unquote, their way of life. And it's just a coincidence that that way of life was founded on chattel slavery. Um, and, the, and so the argument is that, you know, they were, just, they were just being independent. They just didn't want these pesky northerners coming in and telling them what to do, and they didn't think the federal government had the right to do that. That argument is explicitly, in so many words, upheld at the end of Ghosts Out of Watchmen. Atticus says that to uh, Jean Louise, um, who's scout in To Kill a Mockingbird, and although she is absolutely disgusted by Atticus's racism, she accepts the state's rights arguments. And she goes, oh, yeah, well, you're right. I didn't like that part. I sure didn't like the North coming in and telling us that we had to pass a civil rights law. They should have left us to do it, them, uh, to do it ourselves. And so they made exactly the same argument about civil rights that they had made about the Civil War. We would have got around to passing civil rights legislation eventually. We would have desegregated the schools eventually. But the, but the federal government shouldn't have forced our hand is basically what they're saying and, uh, in, in Go Set a Watchman. And as I say now, if you, if you look at the debates over the Confederate flag online, you will see people making exactly the same argument. We would have gone around to it eventually, but we don't, who are the North to come in and tell us that we need to do this? Um, and it's a totally spurious argument. There, there is so much historical evidence to show that at the time of the Civil War, all you have to do is look at the speeches that were made by the head of the Confederacy, by the, the, you know, the head of the Confederate Army, the vice president of the Confederacy, the president of the Confederacy. There are all of these speeches that they made. There's a famous speech called the Cornerstone Speech, where the vice president of the Confederacy says, um, the cornerstone of the Southern way of life that we're fighting to defend is plantation slavery. That's what he says. They all said it. Um, in, as they go to war in the 1860s, they say, we are fighting to defend our way of life, which is slavery. We are defending our right to own slaves. And so there's a complete revisionist history that has been happening for 100 years and more, uh, 150 years now, where people are still saying that this was, slavery was just incidental. Um, but as I say, the, the historical evidence is overwhelming that that simply was not the case. I think we'd probably uh, better finish it there. But thanks so much um, for talking to us, Sarah. That was really interesting. Pleasure. Well, not really, I can't say it was a pleasure. I mean, it's a terrible subject. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad we can get the story out. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thank you.